Welcome to Black Hill. In Glenbrook, sunk into an alcove of quarried stone, with a ragged old mill wheel still clinging to a rubble gable end, dipping a withered skeletal finger into a long-spent stream, the mill house hosts a fine, heavy table of reclaimed wood, sleepers recovered from the wild garlic beds at the side of the old railway line. The line used to carry flour, paper and wool from the mills and the farms around Black Hill. But every length of track, every sleeper was torn up long before anyone living could remember. It seems to mean something to say it's reclaimed from the old railway whenever someone remarks on the table. The house is damp, but it does provide an approximation of warmth and shelter to the two occupants, who are now seated either side of the sleeper table. Their hands are flat on the table close by their water glasses, The distance between them is halved by a green candle in a gold saucer. He wants to write a book. She just wants to move somewhere where the damp won't work on her joints so painfully in the autumn and winter. She tells him she'd like him to write the book, but having gone through the process several times herself, numerous times, she quietly fears that he doesn't appreciate the toll that the activity can extract upon the writer. He arches his eyebrows. I want to write out the end of days. Choose your subject well, she says. You occupy a book until it's writing you. This is, in a sense, why every book written comes true. He teases the candle wax dripping down into the saucer. As it cools, he moulds simple little figures and stands them on the table. The feeling of wax and the borderland of localised burning pain keeps him focused. I'm not afraid to inhabit the work, he says. There is a sense of inevitability in what I am proposing, and I am gripped more than anything by curiosity, and I suppose the need for assistance in resolving the narrative. The premise of the story is simple enough in outline, an alignment of circumstances, all of which are commonly reported news items, forces the global population to understand and accept that they are about to become extinct. 
We know we'll never get off the planet. We know how. We have the science, but we don't have the time it would take to build the solution. It's going to end, that's a given. But how does the news change us? To know that we're about to expire, that there is no future, at least not one that includes us. The world will end and there will be no one left to pass on the story. What do we do with that sudden knowledge? My anticipation is that we will recover some deeply hidden sense of peace and focus on the moment at hand. It'll be a kind of golden age. I was thinking of the terminally ill and how once over the cruel shock of the prognosis, they frequently voice that they have achieved a deep, calm and fulfilling appreciation of the moment at hand that had somehow been denied them when they were, like all of us, consumed by the illusion that we have a future. Take the individual response to death and magnify it to represent us as a doomed species. I have no idea what the story may uncover in me, but in this moment it feels curiously like hope. A tragic hope for sure, and not one short on irony. A hope for finding repose in the closing seconds before annihilation. It's sometimes plight just to look the other way. They both look out of the window. Glenbrook is lit in mustard yellow from a single functioning sodium vapour light. A caravan, rooted and bound in place by the undergrowth, gleams under the light. It sets the overall tone of Glenbrook well, with its mottled roof of moss and lichen. A spreading clutter of wood stacks, collapsed awnings, untended gardens, tools hidden in the long grass, mowers, axes, shears, hammers, picks, crowbars and shovels, all within a crown of alcoves formed by the abandoned quarry in which the handful of dwellings repose. Sometimes it is plight to look away, though she of course had made her mark by simply not looking away. It was something of a family trait. Her little brothers also had not looked away, 
They had become very famous by looking very hard at what they observed others to be incapable of looking at. All the things dismissed as vulgar, poor taste, offensive or at the very least problematic became their medium. Now they are famous artists, the societal reaction tempered by fame and commerce, the happy consequence of art and outrage. She worked alone, however. Even when their star was rising and they invited her to exhibit with them, her reaction was to change her name and distance herself from the noise surrounding her siblings. She had insight enough to know that the subtlety of her own work would be lost entirely in the brash terms of her brother's dialogue with the art world. When he first became enamoured of her, she was drawing and painting a series of monoliths inspired by the stark black blocks appearing in Kubrick's 2001. Her journey progressed to a point where the block lost its physicality, and she rendered landscapes and social scenes, each containing a black rectangular shape with no physical density of its own, just a mathematically pure form that would brood in the midst of an otherwise prosaic narrative art. In time, after they had found the Glenbrook home and they had begun to live together, the rectangles again evolved back towards some sort of shared context with the scenes they inhabited. But it was a negative physicality defining a space. By tilting the shapes over and according them deep slicing shadows, she had arrived at her signature motif, that of the yawning grave. All very morbid, very urban, and for a while she assumed a small amount of notoriety within a press pool who were happy to work on her gender, her looks and her work as some kind of common hunting ground. They could not discuss her work without in some way referring to her tall gaunt frame, her deeply shadowed eyes. The common backstory was some painfully trite juxtaposing of her focus on the grave set against the social conforming image of the female imperative to focus on birth, on motherhood. She had perfect teeth and the softest Hastings accent, and in all those critical encounters she never once lost her quiet assuredness of tone. There was always, always that same ghost of a smile that continues to beguile him now. Whatever impetuous tone he adopted, he knew he had to take her caution seriously when it came to his book. After all, she was the one who had peered into every grave that had featured in her work. They drank their water and snuffed out the candle, their eyes slowly adjusted to the alkaline dimness of the streetlight entering the room. It was only then, in contemplating the end of the day, that he recalled his dream from the previous night. A networking event with businessmen descended into chaos as white-thread lizards occupied hosts and made them attack each other. He recalled thinking that there were few more satisfying sights than businessmen bleeding profusely. It was imperative that he should not allow himself to be touched, or else he too would become a host. He fled on what he presumed to be a motorbike driven by somebody else that he could not see. A female latched onto his shoulder and he could see the thread lizards crawling across the whites of her eyes. She was bleeding from the nose and ears. He lit her hair with a match and out of kindness kissed her on the mouth as the flames took hold. That was stupid, he told himself. 
Then, with no narrative transition, he was in a house. Large, empty, with many rooms yet to be opened. The building had featured regularly in his dreams over many years. A long path out back led through ruins to the castle. He never spoke about his dreams, but he liked to write them out. There was something in the specific speed of handwriting that made it seem that he had had a second visitation, a chance to repair the unruly narrative and find its source. But this house, this specific location in the dream world, continued to evade him. Hello.